Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Hunt for Wellness podcast with Fred Williams, 63, Honeypot. It's another great day for wellness, and this is Bones bringing the packs of F3 Nation the latest strategies and tips to accelerate their king and optimize their queen. Health is a journey and requires you to take a proactive approach on a daily basis. Knowing exactly what to do and how to do it will help you achieve it faster. Each week, we are going to be interviewing the leading health and wellness experts, sharing inspiring stories from the packs, and diving into the latest research to help you optimize your health. So get ready as we embark on your hunt for wellness. Well, welcome back to another edition of the Hunt for Wellness podcast. This is Dr. Tunis Hunt, otherwise known as Bones in the Gloom. And Pax, super excited about being back on the airways with you today and really excited about our guest and the conversation that we're going to have. Um, believe it or not, this guest came very highly recommended by several Pax. In fact, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you may be familiar with this Pax's uh, name as several of our previous guests had mentioned him as a influencer and someone who really inspired them to do some things about their own health and wellness. And um, I was very excited to have this opportunity to uh, have a conversation and really dive into his strategy and what really helps him continue to thrive at the double respect age of 63. So without further ado, I want to welcome our special guest this week, none other than Fred Williams, otherwise known as Honeypot in the Gloom. Welcome to the show, brother. Hi, Bones. Thanks for, helping. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, man. Well, I will say that uh, you are one of the guests that I'm having on the show that has come highly recommended by not one, not two, but multiple guests that I've had on the show as well as just uh, other packs in the gloom. Uh, it sounds like uh, you're quite influential in your region, 
and that you're really making an impact on the PAX lives up there. So I'm super excited to talk to you and really dive into your own health and wellness expertise, as well as your journey. So before we kind of dive into the specifics of all that, help us understand your F3 Genesis. Help us understand a little bit about how you learned about F3, where you're hosting that, and certainly why you got the name Honeypot. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I think it was a bit of fate. Um, in the summer of uh, 2017, I was listening to an Art of Manliness podcast that was about F3. And you know how things just absolutely resonate with you. I said, that is exactly what I'm looking for. I've always enjoyed working out. In fact, um, for years before that, I would go to parks and do my own little kind of F3 workout, jumping up and down and stuff and just kind of doing the stuff we're doing. But it was always all by myself. And then, um, you know, when they threw in this idea of get to still do that, but with all the camaraderie and the faith part of it, I said, that's mm -hmm. what I want to do. And so I... Um, you know, looked online and there was absolutely nothing going on in uh, St. Louis in the summer of 2017. And quite frankly, I forgot all about it. My wife and I went to Charleston, South Carolina for a long weekend and uh, we were staying right along King Street and I went for a, um, uh, a jog and uh, I came across this park. I'm sure the guys there know where it is. And um, now looking back, I'm pretty sure it must have been a convergence because there were about 10 flags there and about looked like 200 guys with black shirts on. And I said, oh, that's those F3 guys that I heard about months ago. And actually, I kicked myself and stop and say hi to I just kept running. Well, I got back to the hotel, uh, looked in the computer, and it was one of those fate things starting next week in St. Louis uh, F3. So I was one of the um, original Redwoods. And so that was my um, um, uh, how I got involved and been involved ever since. But I truly believe it was some form of fate that um i've been looking for something like this for years and then it uh it came right to me so it's it's absolutely changed my life and then honeypot is uh just because i'm a beekeeper um and uh, actually i like to tell people when i was in the circle getting named um i told them i'm a gastroenterologist and a beekeeper and um i was one of the last guys to be named so i understood what was going on you want to give people you know kind of a little humbling or slightly embarrassing name and i thought god they could have gone down the uh, the gi route and things could have been much worse so when i heard honeypot i was like okay yeah i'll, I'll take that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i agree with you 100 percent. so that's interesting that you're a beekeeper uh that's quite a quite a fun little hobby uh just on a personal note my uh in my garage currently we have a beehive delivered to our house and my kids are involved in what they call a venturing crew. It's through the BSA, Boy Scouts of America. And they're starting their own little hive so that they can harvest honey to sell as fundraiser. We have a nice. local we have a local man uh, that's a friend of ours that uh, has been doing it for many years. And he was gracious enough last year to allow the scouts to come and harvest his honey and use it as a fundraiser. But moving forward, they wanted to kind of incorporate their own beekeeping. So I may be reaching out to you personally just to get some tips on beekeeping uh, when that goes. Uh, but that's Absolutely. awesome. It's and a I fascinating agree. hobby. Oh, I can only imagine. I, I was not part of the harvesting of the bee, uh, the honey. Last year, my wife went and, and my kids went, and they said it was just fascinating, the whole process and, and everything around it. So I think that's fantastic that you do that. And, and uh, you kind of alluded to your professional career, being a medical doctor. So I'm excited to hear your perspective on health and wellness, just with some of that background and what you see personally in your own practice and clinic. 
You mentioned 2017. Now, currently you are 63 years old, as I understand it. So you were in your late fifties when you learned about F3, but you were already kind of out there and being pretty active was at, you know, was being physically fit always a high priority to you. I mean, growing up through sports or, or college or whatever, help us understand that Genesis or that story. Yeah, absolutely. So I never was a good athlete. I never lettered in high school, but um, I always um, have really gravitated toward the endurance sports. When I was younger, I, I uh, raced road bikes and again was decent, but you know, nowhere near any kind of uh, championship level. And then I got into mountain biking and racing for years. Um, but along the line, probably between my mid twenties and early forties, I think I did something like 55 marathons. So I was always on that endurance type of thing. And then I, you know, knew that you had to kind of supplement that with, um, uh, you know, just being purely endurance, endurance athlete is not a, a very healthy uh, lifestyle. So I would just kind of do these routines in and out of gyms. I'd, I'd um, join a gym for, you know, a year and then just get tired of it. And it's just not my cup of tea. So, but no, in answer to your question, really, since my teens, I, I think I've kept myself in reasonably good shape obviously like when i was an intern and resident in my 20s you know all you think about then is sleep but um, apart from that pretty much for the last 40 years i have um have been active um, um, all along yeah so i'm assuming you were in the high school what in the 70s yes yeah, so i went to high school graduated in 78 and college in 82 gotcha so was uh you know, jogging, lifting weights, running, that type of stuff. I mean, how popular was it and, and it's from a cultural standpoint back then? Well, and, and that was kind of do? the first running phase. Uh, you know, first uh, uh, a running craze occurred kind of in the um, uh, late 70s. So that there, there was a very popular thing to be uh, doing. And uh, certainly, you know, all the guys I hung out with, everybody weight lifted. And, and also, you know, it was a pretty active uh, pretty active time back then now cycling was not all that popular I, I was um you know you show up a at a cycling race and you know the junior category you know you know the younger guys you'd have you know six guys there or something like that so cycling has certainly blossomed in the last 40 years but now certainly growing growing up um was always pretty active got it now was your family kind of into health and wellness what kind of piqued your interest in a becoming a doctor and then b just kind of having that health and wellness mindset um, no, actually, my uh, dad was a salesman, and uh, there was really not a lot of health and wellness. I mean, I think by, you know, 60s and 70s standards, we we ate healthy and all that. But um, um, it wasn't like my dad was out running all the time and that kind of thing. I think he played golf like, you know, once every two months or something. That was enough exercise to hold you over till the next time you uh, were golfing. So, you know, I, um, in terms of how I became a doctor, uh, I got involved in uh, some science research in high school and uh, just really enjoyed doing, um, you know, this is stuff working on mice and rats and things like that. And so I kind of had the idea that I was going to go off to school and be some kind of a PhD uh, researcher. But then I got there and I can't remember how, but kind of drifted toward um, thinking an MD would be a better way to go. So, but I, I knew going into college that I was along that lines of wanting to be in the sciences, either a PhD or an MD. Yeah. What college did you go to? I went to the university of Rochester in upstate New York. Gotcha. Now, is that where you're from the New York area? No, actually I'm from Kansas city and I uh, just happened to get a nice scholarship from them and uh, the money said a lot. So I uh, headed up there. I think I was the only person in all of 
the university that was from Kansas, literally. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to medical school, started learning the ins and outs of, you know, what they're teaching in medicine and so forth. What kind of led you down the specialty path of the gastroenterologist? You know, that's an interesting question. A lot of people have asked me that, and I don't know. Um, within a few months of being in med school, I decided that I, I wanted to be a gastroenterologist, and um, but there, I didn't have like a, a mentor or something like that that turned me on or whatever. But, you know, I think um, a couple things that I figured out that I did like about it is we actually take care of more organs than any other specialty. So we have the esophagus, stomach, small intestine, large intestine, gallbladder, pancreas, and liver are all, all ours. So there's a variety of different diseases, depending how far you want to specialize, you can really hone down into just one of those areas. And then I like the idea that there's a lot of cognitive parts to being a gastroenterologist, but there's also just doing procedures, you know, um, endoscopies, we're inserting a, um, a scope in someone's stomach or colonoscopies, which I kind of call video games. So, you know, half of my week is spent, you know, in the office talking to people. And then the other half is just kind of getting paid to play video games. So um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a nice combination. Got it. But there was so nothing that really um, kind of like, oh, you know, this I, I love this guy, you know, and he took me under his wing. There was really nothing like that. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like any family history or anybody that's affected you personally to nope. think I want to go take care of people just like this or whatever. So you mentioned a bunch of organs, obviously a handful of diseases and so forth that can be associated with each and every one of those on a typical week. I mean, is there things that you're, you're doing more of? I mean, what, what seems to be the state of a, the American public right now, as far as what are they coming to see someone like yourself for most of the time? Well, the, you know, if you look at probably our five biggest um, disorders, diseases, whatever you want to call them that we see, um, heartburn, um, you know, acid reflux is huge. Irritable bowel syndrome is a huge component. And that's kind of just a broad spectrum of this. Basically, you know, nausea, indigestion, diarrhea, constipation, bloating, abdominal cramping, irregular bowel habits. Um, so heartburn, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, ever-growing amount is fatty liver. Um, which is really, I think, making into the main, mainstream press that, you know, you, pretty much anybody who's overweight or obese has excessive fat in their liver. And this can increase your risk of developing cirrhosis, but is also linked with cardiovascular disease, stroke, diabetes, those type of things. And then the other two diseases we see a lot of are what are called inflammatory bowel disease, which is ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, which are just inflammatory conditions of either the entire intestinal tract or the a colon. But if you look at all those, if you take a few steps back, they're almost all diet and lifestyle related. I mean, these things, you know, um, it's just the way we eat and the way we live sets us up for um, these disorders, not to mention, um, you know, they estimate 80% of the chronic illness in America is uh, diet and lifestyle related. Yeah. I mean, the underlying factor, I think, in all those diseases, based on my understanding, is that inflammatory response, right? This inflammation going on yep. in the body. And to your point, diet and lifestyle really can tailor that one, one, one way or the other, which, you know, is one of the reasons I'm excited about talking to you today, because I think you can glean a lot of uh, information and insight to, to the listeners, because I think most of us have either been personally affected or know somebody who uh, is maybe suffering with one of those main things that you just mentioned, you know, whether it's just as simple, I say simple as acid reflux or heart, you know, heartburn to one of those more 
you know, problematic issues when you've gotten bleeding ulcers and, and other issues going on sure. on the other end of things. And, and none of, of that on the spectrum is fun to deal with. And in my experience and just talking to other patients and other people that are dealing with that, in many cases, most of the time, they're, 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 the solution seems to be medication or procedures uh, that there's very little information typically shared by the standard American uh, physician around diet and lifestyle. And, and, and my understanding is, you know, you kind of take a little bit different approach, which is, which is why I wanted to, to kind of chat with you a little bit. So uh, when it comes to lifestyle and diet, what are you seeing um, kind of is the most pervasive thing out there that's really wrecking a lot of people's health that almost anybody across the board should be cognitive of? Well, I think it has to be diet. Um, you know, certainly there's other components of lack of exercise, poor sleep, uh, excessive stress, toxin exposure. I also think that the lack of community, as we all know so well in F3, and also spirituality. I mean, I think so many people are just kind of adrift. And unfortunately, in Western medicine, we have kind of discounted all of those things, you know, that that's what witch doctors do. But, um, you know, we, we just kind of have this reductionist view of medicine that we can reduce everything down to just its smallest um, component with not really looking at the, the big picture. But I think if you had to pick one of those, it's the diet. You know, um, the American dieters, they like to call it the standard American diet or SAD, is pathetic. You know, 70% of calories consumed in the United States are processed food. Um, another 25% or so are animal products, including dairy. And it's estimated that the average American, maybe four to 5% of their diet is um, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, the things we're supposed to eat. So basically people are living on junk food and animal products and we're, we're seeing the consequences of that. Yeah, I agree with you. And in and, and my personal journey, just with my own health or just consulting with other clients, that seems to be a catalyst for most of their health concerns. And, and one of the things that we find or I have found personally, just to your point, if you, if you concentrate on that diet first and, and importantly, some of those other things like stress and sleep and, and toxic environment and so forth can be dealt with, but doesn't usually have the catalyst that the diet alone has. And if the diet is ignored and concentration on the other things are first, then you just don't get the same results. So I, I completely agree with you on that. When it comes to processed foods, um, are you finding like many of your clients are just, I mean, are you referring to like potato chips and pasta or are you, uh, are there other things that you find is pretty prevalent that's causing you know, havoc when it comes to the gastrointestinal system? Well, I think it's predominantly, you know, the white sugar, white flour, and then all of the chemicals, the preservatives, um, artificial sweeteners, all the dyes and all. So basically you're eating this um, and also all the saturated fat. So it's the saturated fat, white sugar, white flour, and bunches of chemicals all thrown in together that people are literally existing on. And, you know, we wonder why they're, why they're sick. Um, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why that is. Yeah. And unfortunately it's what's advertised, right? It's what's subsidized by our government. It is what is encouraged. When you look at these, in my opinion, these um, uh, false 
food pyramid or eating schemes that they promote through through our government agencies. You know, they kind of propagate these very things that I think we should avoid. And oh, really, yes. yeah, go ahead. Well, our government, as you well said, I mean, the USDA, they're part of their mission or probably the prime part of their mission. My understanding is to uh, um, help the American um, food industry to sell their products the agricultural industry. And so um, there is a component of the USDA that does deal with health and wellness, but, you know, it's like everything, show me the money when you're going up against, you know, big dairy and big cattle and everything else, big sugar. And the end of the day, they're going to um, dictate what the, the, you know, the food pyramids and all look like. So yeah, we're, we're up against, and, you know, unfortunately a lot of people, I think because of that, don't even realize the problems with their diet. I, I think people are starting to, but, um, you know, it's amazing when they do studies and people say, I eat pretty well. When they actually look at their diet, they're, they're not that good. So, um, and, but they don't realize it. Yeah. I mean, it, almost every person I ever work with nutritionally, um, tongue in cheek says that their diet's pretty good. It's not that bad. And, and yep. until we really pull back the curtain and I'm able to educate them on what it is that they consider good it's, it's pretty eye-opening, which, you know, maybe a, a, a rabbit hole to go down, you know, for a few seconds here, because I think to your point, the, there is a lot of misguidance out there. I, I think advertisers find buzzwords like low fat, low sugar, uh, you know, uh, they look, they look at things like, you know, gluten-free, they look at things like cholesterol. And what people don't realize is in many cases, it's just a marketing term that really influences you to make that that buy because it's you associate it with health when in reality it doesn't necessarily equate to health you know low fat doesn't mean healthy it just means that they've concocted a, a, a something else now in most cases when they take fat out they have to add sugar in to make it exactly. satiating and, and tasty and so that's where i think people get in trouble exactly and um, also all these foods are just, they're just not natural. You know, they're devoid of phytonutrients and vitamins and minerals and all the other things you need to be healthy. And they've kind of stripped all that out. And probably the number one thing they've stripped out is, is fiber. So you're really left with this kind of more or less dead food that doesn't really have any positive effect. I mean, it has calories to keep you, um, going, but that's, that's about it. And, and protein, nobody in America is protein deficient, but other than we're uh, nobody's calorie and nobody's protein deficient, but other than that, um, there's not much else going on positive in this diet. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I would suggest that I do believe that some people are protein deficient. I don't think if people are, are, are being intentional about it, that especially as we age, I think protein becomes more important to, to yeah. retain some of the, the bone and muscle strength. But, uh, I think protein unfortunately has also been villainized in some dietary circles, uh, in my opinion, uh, unnecessarily, but I do agree that, uh, you know, cheap, uh, of readily available foods is what they propagate. And it's just, as we've seen in our chronic disease numbers over the last two decades, three decades, four decades, I mean, ever since they declared the war on obesity, we've gotten fatter as a nation, sicker yes. as a nation and more and, 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 and more, you know, costly, as a nation. Um, do you know any of those stats? I mean, I've heard different stats over time, but as far as like what we spend on average on the American public, do you have any of those stats available? I don't, but I know that per capita, 
you know, we are um, in the Western world, hands down, the most expensive healthcare system. And yet, when you look at our outcomes data compared to other Western European and wealthy countries, we're kind of at best middle of the pack. So we're paying a huge amount of money for very mediocre healthcare. Yeah, that's what I've heard too. I mean, and seen some statistics in the past. I want to say it's almost as close to ten thousand dollars per person per I year on, on average. And then, in the next closest country is you know two or three thousand. I mean, we're we're more than double. And then to your other point, I think when you're looking at world health ratings, America's way up in the 30s and maybe even low 40s as far as the efficiency and effectiveness of it. Yet we spend that much more money than all these other countries. Um, and and it, it, is a, it is a shame. I think part of that has to do with our lobbying and what we're allowed to advertise. And what most people don't realize is we're one of the only two countries, I think, in the world that direct advertise pharmaceuticals, uh, which yep. is, I think, a problem in and of itself. No, I agree. I think the other one is New Zealand, if I remember right. Yes, you're right. And, uh, but I, you know, as a free speech kind of guy, I said, well, what's wrong with that? You know, they should be able to, but unfortunately, I think they really manipulate people and um, uh, they don't really understand the, uh, the data. So, um, yeah, I actually wish that would go away. Yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, I, I'm a big capitalist mindset guy. I'm, I'm big on free speech and freedoms. And what unfortunately occurs is because those industries have such a monopoly of money and power that the other side of the information isn't propagated as well. And so it's not really this informed consent that most of us are getting. We're getting influencing the worst into believing and doing one thing when in reality, we're not getting the whole second side of the the story, right. it's con conflict of interest for sure. And you know, when you look at medical schools, I understand that a lot of them receive heavy donations from big pharma and, you know, either implicitly or explicitly, they're saying, you know, for this money, we expect you to push the pharmaceutical view of medicine, you know, um, and kind of ignore all the other lifestyle uh, issues. Um, and I certainly see that today where there's virtually nothing said about any of these um, other ways to treat patients. Um, and, and also um, what I find very annoying is in, in Western medicine, anything that isn't pharmaceutical is immediately discounted that it's just some kind of ancient, uh, you know, hogwash that couldn't possibly be true, which is, I think, kind of ridiculous. I mean, some of these healing traditions have been around for thousands of years, and there's a lot we can learn from them. Absolutely. And, and you know, uh, I don't think either one of us are here to, to, to say that there's not a time and place for pharmaceuticals. Where there's not a time and place for surgery, there absolutely is and, and should be implemented when necessary. We're just, I think, commenting that it's just overplayed most of the time and that we as humans have a lot of power over our own health when doing the right things, whether it's diet, lifestyle, exercise, and so forth. So as patients come to you and, and maybe come in with acid reflux, for instance, um, what are some lifestyle dietary recommendations that you typically have them look or, or evaluate to kind of move them in the right direction? So specifically for reflux, um, a number of things. First of all, um, weight is so tied to that. Um, you know, actually having the uh, amount of, you know, abdominal fat literally pushes down on your stomach and causes your stomach to reflux uh, stomach contents and acid back into your esophagus. I remember I had one guy tell me that if his weight was below 208, 
he would not have heartburn as soon as he went over 280 came back and that was kind of an oddity but i think there's not many many people tell me that um you know as they lost weight their heartburn went away you know eating small meals not engorging yourself at every meal avoiding hot spicy foods acidy food not eating before going to bed if necessary elevating the head of the bed um and i've also been um uh, fascinated by the fact that um, trigger foods are, are different. You know, one person will tell you that, um, you know, pizza really bothers them. Next person will say that it's uh, coffee. And I say, you know, whatever your trigger food may be, just, um, um, you know, avoid those. But I think it's basically um, less eating, not eating before going to bed, avoiding trigger foods and losing weight is, is certainly a good place to start. Now, it's interesting about trigger foods because I, I do know physiologically speaking, we're all a little bit different. We you know, process different chemicals differently. Do you believe that there's any um, validity to the thought of you know, this chronic inflammatory response going on in the system and that overall inflammation just being reduced that maybe some of these trigger foods wouldn't be as triggering? Is that, you know, I don't know if I've read about that, that? In, in heartburn, but certainly in other inflammatory conditions and irritable bowel syndrome, also colitis, Crohn's disease. I think that absolutely is, is true. Okay. So again, kind of reducing that inflammatory overall response in the, in the body, in the system yep. ultimately is optimal. In addition to, if we can identify a food or two that might be more problematic to us specifically, and then ultimately that weight loss, I agree with you there. I mean, anytime we're carrying excess weight. Um, you know, what most people don't realize is that our fat doesn't have a vascular system that our heart has to work harder to pump blood around and all these other issues that happen when we carry that excess weight and why, when we reduce that weight and that lose that fat, why specifically, you know, our system improves the inflammation, you know, improves and overall health can, can be improved as well. Now, so speaking of visceral fat, you know, you mentioned earlier that visceral fat was one of those things that, you know, you're noticing that can happen with a lot of individuals. First of all, help, help the listener understand specifically what you mean about visceral fat. How is that different than, let's just say, subcutaneous or, you know, abdominal fat and why that can be so dangerous um, if you don't address it? A good, a good point. There are different kinds of fat. The fat that we worry about the most is around your abdominal organs. So, um, you know, fat in general is not good for you. Obviously, you, know, you need to have a little, but when it becomes excessive, the fat that is outside your abdominal wall, um, that fat has its issues, but the fat that wraps itself around all your internal organs is very meta metabolically active and can have a lot of problems. It can really increase your risk of developing diabetes, hypertension, the so-called metabolic syndrome, probably also increases your risk of uh, developing cancer because of um, it's very hormonally active. So that that fat is really um, the, the triggering of a lot of these um, problems. And it's interesting, you'll have, um, you know, some people, if you do appropriate studies, which aren't typically done in clinical practice, but, you know, you'll have people who, um, interestingly, just have all their fat outside of their abdomen, you know, they just kind of wear it around their waist. And they may be, you know, have the same percentage of body fat as someone who is all wrapped around the organs. But the one typically who has it around the organs probably is going to have a lot more metabolic disorders. So where the fat ends up is, is very, uh, very important. Yeah. And there's a term out there called skinny fat. That's often yes. thrown, thrown around. And, and I think that's what you're alluding to with those individuals exactly. where they don't have this big beer gut looking belly. 
that is associated by most people as being fat, but internally speaking, they got a lot of that excess fat. Now, what's the best way of identifying that visceral fat? I mean, how can an individual, if they're concerned that they might have it, how, how, what kind of numbers do they look at from a blood test or even imaging factors that you find is helpful? Well, I think in terms of, um, you know, numbers, probably the best, um, um, routine test is just the BMI, which any doctor, anybody can do their BMI is just a um, calculation of their height and weight. You can go online and find it. And typically the optimal BMI is probably about 23. Um, normal is 25. And then once you're over 30, um, you're, you're obese. Though, interestingly, in Japan, they don't differentiate between obese and overweight. They basically said when you get to 25, you're obese. Um, they don't have that kind of wiggle room of, of overweight. And, and it is kind of semantics. I mean, what's the difference between being a BMI of 29 and 30? But there's certainly a continuing, you know, if you discount the lower side, I mean, obviously, if people with eating disorders or whatever, you can go too low on your BMI. Um, but, you know, um, even between the differences of saying having a BMI of 22, 23 versus 25, you already start to see a slight increase in various uh, metabolic disorders. So there, there's pretty much a, a linear uh, increase in um, diseases as you go from 22 to 25 to 30, 35, 40 uh, type of thing. So really being in that lean uh, area really has a lot of very positive uh, health benefits. In terms of actually imaging the fat, it's kind of hard to do. You certainly can do it with an MRI. There's other studies, but again, the, the cost of those typically are prohibitive. Your, your insurance company is probably not going to do a, um, 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 yeah, pay for an MRI just to see how much fat you have. Then there are some of these scales that some doctors have most on. You'll see them maybe in weight loss clinics and also in alternative practitioners that can actually measure your percent uh, body fat a little more subjectively can tell you percent muscle, uh, muscle mass, um, fat mass. And, and they're actually, you know, the, the machines are actually not that expensive, but um, you don't see them very much in, um, in um, just general practice. Yeah. You're referring to some of those impedance testing as yes, well as exactly. the fat calipers that you can use. Yep. And then uh, even uh, the water, you know, you can kind of get dunked in water. Water submerged. Yeah. And, and those are a little bit more uh, specific when you come to the percentages. But yeah, BMI classically is one of those tools. Now, do you use uh, like values like triglyceride levels, LDL levels? Do you look at those as well as an indicator? Yeah. So, you know, in gastroenterology, not so much in that we don't really deal with the cardiovascular risk factors like that. But, you know, I find a very common conversation I have with somebody is they come to me with one of those five common diseases um, and, you know, perhaps maybe fatty liver. And they don't realize that their diabetes or insulin resistance, hypertension, obesity, fatty liver, their irritable bowel syndrome, um, their high cholesterol, high triglycerides, they think they have five or six separate disorders and they're scratching their head as to, you know, um, you know, why me? Why do, well, how could I possibly develop six diseases by the time I'm 45? And it, it actually kind of shocks them when you say this is all one disorder. Um, and it, it's a real eye opener. And unfortunately, it's again, a little bit of a knock on medicine and that each doctor kind of looks at their one little um, part of the world and kind of discounts the rest. So where I would be is I'd say, well, tell me, you know, I imagine your primary doctor checked your cholesterol panel, your lipid panel, like, oh, yeah, my 
you know, my LDL is way too high and my triglycerides are way too high. And so, you know, I really won't get into specifically how to treat that. I'll, I'll typically say, you know, you talk to your doctor about your primary doctor, you know, do you need a statin or whatever else? But I, I, I'll say, you know, no matter what they recommend, this is all going to get markedly better or go away with the appropriate diet and lifestyle changes. So that's really one of the things I try to do is educate people that all these diseases are all essentially related and, and one, one disorder. Yeah. I mean, I a hundred percent agree with you. I mean, we basically just have this metabolic dysfunction, which is happening in the mass majority of our population, which is leading into these independent diagnoses. And, you know, to your point, I think that's the good and bad about some of our medical establishment is we've allowed ourselves to be so compartmentalized, which is great for some, you know, specific approaches, but at the same time, to your point, you get one doctor and talk about your heart. You get another doctor, talk about your liver, get another doctor, talk about this. And then there's not always that communication across the board about or how we, how are we treating this person as a whole individual intertwined and, and people find themselves on a medication from this doctor, medication from that doctor. And it's refreshing to hear you say, well, listen, at the, at the crux of it all, if we can just back up here and concentrate on the underlying root cause, which is this metabolic disease, which is not being addressed, unfortunately, by these other factors and work on that, all these other factors can absolutely be improved upon. So it's refreshing, you know, for, for me to hear you say that, because that's not always the case and certainly not the experience I've had with some other um, approaches with, with some medical physicians. So uh, it's always good well, to find guys willing to, to get out there and tell the truth. And unfortunately, and, you know, part of the problem is you look at the average overworked primary care physician, be it an internist or a family practitioner. I read somewhere now they're down to about actually nine minutes of time. You, so you come in for your appointment with your doctor and you have nine minutes and, you know, they just really can't delve into anything. And, and so the easiest thing to do is either order tests write prescriptions or just get you out the door to see a physician or I mean a specialist so oh your tummy hurts well you know I'm not going to deal with that you just go see the gastroenterologist and so it's very fragmented care and if you're you know if the primary care doctor they, they know how to treat this stuff there's, there's just nothing you can do in nine minutes if you know they had a half hour with each patient that came in um, they would address these things so all they're drawing you know they're kind of doing battlefield medicine they just got to get them in and out um, you know I know the um, hospital on uh, the uh, primary care physicians around here, some of them told me that the hospital expects them to see 28 to 30 patients a day. And, um, you know, you do the math on that, you can't, and that, you know, all you need is a call from the hospital. You need to talk to someone in the ER because one of your patients is there or the, you know, God forbid you have to go to the bathroom or something. I mean, now suddenly you're, you know, you're down to eight minutes a patient or something. So it's a, it's a totally dysfunctional system. And, uh, you know, just as an aside, I actually, because of this, I see a concierge doctor, um, which, you know, you, you have to pay for. But, um, uh, you know, when I'm going for my yearly physical, it's an hour and a half um, physical. And I mean, she goes through everything. And uh, but, you know, that's kind of what you're paying for. Um, but, yeah, obviously you, you could not be financially viable as a primary care doctor if you, you know, saw six people a day and, you know, it just wouldn't work. Yeah, and, and you brought up great points there. And, and and just to be clear, I'm not blaming the medical doctors out there for that because I do agree with you that it's the system that they're 
unfortunately find themselves in that are propagating what they're having to do. And unfortunately, in many cases, the system that they work in and for is for, you know, for profit. They make yep. a profit by turnover. They make profit by, you know, prescribing and, and procedures. And it's just kind of the reality of it. Um, but unfortunately, the general public don't doesn't put that perspective in place when it comes to their own health decisions. So they unfortunately call kind of fall into that and not put that emphasis on their own health and wellness because, um, you know, they're just go quote, quote, going by what the system told them to do or their doctor told them to do. And, and, you know, to your point, that's not always necessarily the best solution for them personally when some of this other factor, and I don't blame doctors either. Unfortunately, um, the majority of the population wants a quick fix. They want somebody else to be responsible for their health. They want yes. to go in and get fixed for the, their poor decisions. And they want it all to be okay that they can go home and continue to live ignorantly or against health and wellness and expect, you know, this abundant life. And and so doctors are just like, fine, is that's what you want? Here it is. But that's, you know, I mean, how many patients walk in the door today because we mentioned you know the pharmaceuticals ability to market straight to the the patient they walk in and tell the doctor this is what i think i have this is what i need and you know the doctor is in a position where they either oblige or the patient goes finds it absolutely no it's kind of the pill for every ill yeah um though my and, and i agree with you you know i certainly have had patients like that or you know just they may pay lip service but they have no intentions in changing their lifestyle but i do think on the other side You'll never know until you tell them. And so, you know, I'll say to your patient, you know, did your cardiologist ever talk to you about, you know, healthier? Well, he told me to eat a healthier diet. Um, what, what did that mean? I don't know. He just said I needed to eat healthier. So, which means they told him nothing. So, but I mean, to me, I think you have to, you have to have, you know, educate them. And, you know, I'm, um, I like the kind of saying of some will, some won't, so what? Um, so I, you know, I lay it out there and if people are like, I'm not doing that. That's fine. Um, here's a pill. Um, but fortunately I've gotten in the St. Louis area, I've gotten to be, you know, fairly well known as like the only gastroenterologist who thinks this way. So I have a lot of patients coming to me saying, I'm just hoping to try to, um, uh, uh, treat these problems from a medical or from a nutritional standpoint. And, you know, just also, as you were saying, I, I use medications all the time. I am not anti-medication by any means, but I think that they need to be you know, part of a comprehensive uh, care program. You just can't make people better by um, just giving them some some pills. Um, and I think that's often where we stop. You know, we're like, okay, the pill works. You're, you're fine. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. And you brought up that point about you know the doctor may make a comment like eat healthier or you should start exercising, but there's a lack of clarity as far as what that patient needs to do. So on that note, why don't we kind of switch gears here? I think we've established that we know the system is broken, that most people, if they really want to um, get healthy, are going to have to take some initiative on their own. But as I've shared many times before, uh, when it comes to learning what they should do, it's a plethora of information out there. I mean, there's so much conflicting data and information, and depending on what kind of uh, bias you have going into the search, you, you know, you can fall on one side of the spectrum or the other. And so it becomes overwhelming patients or, or you know, individuals 
uh, because of that uncertainty, maybe not do what they need to do, or certainly they dabble with it with limited results and then only abandon it. So it becomes this, you know, revolving door of problems. So walk us through kind of your own personal uh, choice in, in food and nutrition. Obviously, you're thriving at 63, still out in the gloom, kicking butt. And uh, a lot of guys <laughs> have uh, have told me that, you know, you're an inspiration to them as far as your own health journey. So walk us through kind of in your opinion, what is a great way of approaching health or, and diet and, and what you're doing yourself? Okay. Well, I've had an evolution, I would say, for the last, I guess it's getting on toward eight or nine years now. I have been essentially completely plant-based, uh, whole food plant-based. I don't like to use the term vegan because, first of all, it kind of has a, a bad um, um, meaning to it. But also, there's a lot of very, very uh, unhealthy vegans. You know, you can eat an entire bag of potato chips and be a vegan. But when you throw in that whole food, plant-based, what you're basically looking at is fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, healthy grains, legumes, beans, and that's what I believe people are um, supposed to eat. And, you know, what I tell people is I think you can get really into the weeds of all these different um, problems within you. But um, I think that there's three main things I tell people. And I tell them, you know, just about everybody agrees with two of them. And then there's one of them that um, are somewhat controversial. And the first thing I tell people is I don't know any nutritionist, no matter what they think. Uh, what their the best diet is, you know, paleo, keto, whatever they think, everybody says get off the junk food. There is no value to junk food, no matter what your food philosophy. And that's quite frankly what's killing people. And as I said, 70% of um, American calories are in these um, calorically dense, nutrient-poor foods that are full of chemicals and salt and sugar and fat. And so I say that that's number one, start there. The second thing is, with few exceptions, um, most people will tell you to um, increase the amount of natural foods, you know, the fruits and vegetables and all. Again, there's nuances there. There's, the, um, you know, the paleos who don't like beans and gluten and, and on and on. And then there's, um, you know, there is that um, one diet that I think is just borderline ridiculous um, of the carnivore diet where you eat, consume nothing but animal products. But apart from those little groups, Everybody agrees that nobody in this country eats enough natural plant-based food. And then I think the third area where there is some honest um, disagreement is how much animal products you should be having. Um, you know, I've come down on the standpoint of I don't think human beings really need them at all. But certainly I could be convinced that occasional meat or something like that is um, uh, is okay. Certainly, you know, you go all the way back to the Bible, you can see, you know, eating me. So it has been part of the um, human diet for a long time, but certainly not the huge amounts of meat we eat now and, and how much of it is is processed. And that brings up one other thing, too, is if you are eating meat, I think the one thing um, everybody agrees on is the one meat to avoid or meats to avoid are the processed meats, um, the deli meats, salami, pepperoni, um, bologna, all that. I mean, the World Health Organization has actually uh, come out and listed them as a class one carcinogen, which puts them in the same category as cigarette smoking. I mean, it is unequivocal that these cause cancer. So if you are eating meat, I think avoiding those. Um, and then the one other area, which um, I think there's a little bit of controversy that kind of falls under the animal products is dairy. I, I don't think human beings really need a dairy. You know, as it's, a couple people pointed out that uh, we are the only species on the planet that consumes other species milk. And the only species that consumes milk after 
being a, a baby. And, uh, you know, uh, cow's milk was meant to make little baby cows grow into big cows and really was not meant for us. And, you know, again, there are some people that disagree with that, but I think overall, um, uh, most people agree on limiting dairy. And I can tell you as a gastroenterologist that that's pretty much the first question I ask people who come to me with irritable bowel syndrome indigestion and all, how much dairy do you have? And I tell them that's number one. You just quit the dairy and let's see how you do in a month because so many people do not do well with dairy. Um, and, you know, if you look at dairy, um, uh, it turns out that the only people who really tolerate lactose are uh, Caucasians. I mean, 90 to 95% of African-Americans, Hispanics, and Asians are all lactose intolerant. And actually about 50 to 60% of Caucasians are. So there's just really this small group of white people that tolerate lactose. And so for most people, they actually don't tolerate it very well. So in summation, I, I just think, you know, eat um, lots and lots of natural foods, get rid of the junk food, and markedly limit all um, animal products. And there's a, a guy, um, like I was saying, Michael um, Pollan, he's a, um, an author, and I love his uh, saying, um, eat real food, mostly plants, not too much. <laughs> and I, I think that pretty well sums it up. Yeah, no, I mean, you brought up some, you know, interesting points. And, and as our listeners know, I've had other guests on the show propagate some other lifestyle and, and dietary approaches. You mentioned, you know, some of that through that. And, and that's kind of where it gets a little bit confusing for people because you have quote unquote experts and healthy people kind of propagating certain styles and thriving, you know, one way or the other. And so I, I do believe that we're not all created equal and we all will find and adapt to that. I have mentioned also, and, and you brought it up, that across the board, regardless of what spectrum you're on, whether you're carnivore or vegan, at the end of the day, my opinion is what benefits most people, regardless of their dietary choice, is what they choose not to eat. You know, it's the elimination of the processed foods, the extra sugar, the artificial colors and sweeteners, yes. the hydrogenated fats and oils and things like that. I mean, we, we recognize that those just have no place in the human physiology and, and human diet. And that in many cases, a purist on either side of the spectrum that's willing to eat real whole food is going to benefit with that because of that elimination first and foremost. Then you get into the nuances, as you mentioned, of some of those other factors, you know, how much animal meat, how many plants, you know, what spectrum of, of, of grains do you allow what spectrum of dairy do you allow uh, in an in, in individual? I will um, uh, agree with you that in my experience, I do find that most people do not tolerate dairy as well. That uh, in many cases, when I work with a client, that is something I highly recommend that they avoid and eliminate, at least for a period of time. Because what they will find out is if they do reintroduce it later on, it's very easy to see a bodily reaction to it if, if they've given their body a break from it for a while. A lot of times, if we're chronically putting it into our system, it may be a little difficult for us to see how just how it's affecting us because our body's just naturally accommodating for it and getting used to that thing. But in my experience, when people have avoided it and then reintroduced it, that's when they go, oh, wait, now I see... <laughs> that difference that that just 
just made in my life. Now, what's your take on like butter or ghee? Do you, I find for whatever reason, people seem to continue to tolerate that outside of drinking and using milk and other capacities. I didn't know if you noticed one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest component of milk products is is the lactose, which is not in ghee. And, you know, yeah. ghee has a lot of what are called, what's called butyric acid, which can be very good for your gut. So, yeah, I mean, ghee is one of those um, things. Again, I, I I find that there are some people out there that are, um, you know, they're just absolute zealots in, in the plant-based world that everything else can't possibly be good. And those are the kind of products that I think may have some benefit. Um, you know, I think you have to watch out with those i don't know what the saturated fat content of those um are you know i don't think you want huge amounts of it but certainly um butyric acid which is in fact kind of where the word butter comes from um does have some um some benefits but um again the downside is the saturated fat which is the main driver of cardiovascular disease yeah um well i mean my understanding was you know inflammation you know again going back to that buzzword i've yeah. had some I've had some interesting conversations and read some things, you know, about around saturated fat. And sometimes it gets villainized, especially in the meat industry product, uh, more so in my opinion than, than, you know, than it needs to be. But I certainly agree with you when we're talking about bad fat and bad fat to me is more that trans hydrogenated, uh, fat is kind of how I personally categorize it. And I try to not, villainize like red meat for instance as much as i know some communities do or maybe even your own personal belief is uh, personally i just you know that's just my own sure. perspective on it when well, i, I, think, when I yeah, get into it and those are the honest um uh, conversations that are had every day in the nutritional world uh you know personally i come down on the side that um of you know i think the more you limit red meat and saturated fat the better but also, again, if you are going to consume those things, I think it's definitely it's true. If you can get true range-fed beef, um, you're better off. And I think in moderation, you know, um, a serving should maybe be, you know, four to six ounces. You don't need an 18-ounce steak. And I don't think you need to have meat at every meal. But, you know, so those are the areas where I think there can be some some common ground. But, um, you know, but a really, you know, huge fatty steak that has grams and grams of saturated fat isn't as I don't think it's good for you. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. And, and like I said, I've had um, other individuals just like yourself say the same thing. And as a student of health and nutrition um, over, you know, about two decades now myself, personally, I've seen a lot of that come and go too. I mean, uh, my own personal belief has kind of swung one way or, or the other. And, and like, I'm very transparent with people. I'll say, you know, I view this as a journey. Uh, yes. As I learn information, I'm I'm going to dabble with it. I'm gonna, I'm going to experiment with it. I'm going to do different things. I, I've I've been much more plant based in the past, and I've been much more animal based in in the past, and 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 played with kind of what I find works really well for me, and and um you know and, and so forth. But uh, I also recognize that what I specifically do day in and day out may not be perfect for the next person and their own yeah. health journey and, and so forth. But, uh, no, I agree. I mean, I, I've seen yeah, my view shift. My views have shifted over the years. And, and to me, anytime you kind of, you know, the, you know, the, the science is settled, the science is never settled. And as I right. read new things, um, my view changes. And, um, you know, I think that's just part of uh, being a, a scientist as, 
you you just kind of keep analyzing the data and new stuff comes and goes. Um, so I don't foresee myself drastically moving away from being whole food plant based. But again, if, you know, there was this plethora of evidence that came along and said, you know, your health is so much better if you have, you know, meat twice a week or something. I wouldn't just say, no, I refuse to believe that. I would say, okay, I think, you know, the data is there. So, um, yeah, I think it's always having an open mind uh, to say, yes, um, um, there, there's new things to be learned. Absolutely. And that's what you have to be. You have to be willing to be educated. You have to be willing to be, um, you know, have that conversation uh, and dabble and try it. And it's those people that come. I think it's the individuals that, that treat diet as a religion that get yeah. in trouble. <laughs> you know, this, this dogma of I'm correct. Nothing else is right. You're bad if you don't do it, what I do. Um, I think those are the people that lose out the most because they're just not willing to, to learn and, and, and adapt to, to a, a, as we grow and, and learn, you know, as research enhances, right? So we, we get better and better about looking at things and understanding physiology. And if it just is blatantly obvious to you, um, you need to be willing to, to pivot and, and, exactly. and adapt. And I think the other thing, too, is when you look at patients um, treating people, whatever my, you know, I would have my personal views about this, but you also have to meet people where they are. And, you know, telling some, uh, you know, 55-year-old guy that has had, you know, five states for years that um, you can't do that, it's, it's not going to be successful. And so, it's you know, those are the kind of things I work for is, you know, these little baby steps of nutrition or, you know, okay, keep it the meat, but like I said, um, you know, those processed meats, they're, they're, talk about unequivocal. I think it is unequivocal, their cancer risk. How about if we really start cutting down on the bacon every morning? So um, those, I think that that's the way to go. If you hit people with too much, they're just, they're not going to do it. But if you just give them these small doable tasks, I think you can kind of nudge them over time to a, to a healthier diet. Yeah. Going back to kind of what we've already agreed upon and, and, and both propagate, which is let's start simple. Let's start eliminating some of the crap first and just reduce that, reduce that alcohol, reduce that sugar, reduce those yes. artificial colors. If you want to eat this, here's a cleaner version of how to eat that. Uh, and just making those small steps alone, I find is a, a great way of getting someone on that path because then they start feeling better. They start seeing results. And that's when you can get a little bit double down later and say, okay, now that you're doing this, here's the next step and here's the next step. But um, you know, I think that is an issue. People want to jump in head first on a complete lifestyle change overnight. And it's just not sustainable for most people to do that. Yep. Um, and, and then they fall real well short for it. I know you I read somewhere that, um, if you, regardless of his nutrition or whatever, but if you give someone one task to do, they'll have like an 85% chance they can achieve it. If you give them two at the same time, it's like 50%. And if you give them three, it's like 25%. And so, you know, I have wow. these patients that I send to the, you know, hospital nutritionist and they just blast them for an hour with all these handouts and all this stuff. And I think they just sit there nodding their head and going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they probably implement almost none of it, none of it, because they're absolutely overwhelmed. And after a while, they just tune out. So, yeah, I really try to approach, try to find what the worst part of their diet is and say, okay, let's just work on this. And we'll that's deal right. with us later. And, you know, it may take a year or two, but that's, that's sure. okay. Well, and that's the other thing. We have to be willing to allow change to take time. I yeah. think a lot of times we have this expectation that, 
all our problems are going to go away tomorrow or next week. And we get frustrated and discouraged when we don't see these radical changes in our health because we've made a few changes. Um, and, and that's just, it, you know, I tell people all the time, it took you 25 years to get like this, Absolutely. expecting it to go away in two weeks is unrealistic. I mean, you're, you're just going to have to, you know, consistency is key, right? I, I think we talk about that in all aspects of life. The more consistent you are, the more likely you're going to achieve those goals and nutrition and diet is no different, uh, in my opinion. And it sounds like you have the same philosophy yeah, around that. Absolutely. I know you post in the gloom on a pretty regular basis. How often are you posting out there? Probably four to five days a week. Okay. Now, I also understood just based on other conversations with other individuals that you also do some kind of weight training as well. I mean, how important no, is resi- no. Oh, you don't. You don't. No, okay. nothing. The only really weight stuff I do is, as you know, F3 with, the, with our coupons and whatnot. But no, I. Oh, okay. I quit, yeah, I quit the gym probably four years ago. I gotcha. Maybe I miss misheard what they were mentioning. Maybe they just work with you from some of the nutritional perspective and, and yeah. uh, maybe not some of the resistance training. I also uh, read an article about uh, you and doing some biking and stuff. So how often are you still going out there and, and doing some things like that? Yeah. So my other two um, main exercises, is I, I rock a lot. Um, you know, with the guys and also, um, I take my dog out almost every night for probably a two, two and a half mile ruck, typically, you know, carrying 30, 40 pounds, really enjoy that. As I've also found as I've gotten older that, you know, I, I was a former runner and, um, fortunately I never developed any bad joint problems, but running does really cause a lot of, um, soreness in the knees and, and back, at least for me. And now with rucking, I really don't get those feelings, um, and then the other thing, I've always been a big mountain biker. I still mountain bike as much as I can. Unfortunately, in St. Louis in the winter, it's not great. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, those are really, I mean, F3 beatdowns, rucking and, uh, mountain biking are my big loves. And in fact, fortunately, a lot of people know this, but, uh, St. Louis has an incredible mountain biking scene within an hour of St. Louis is well in excess of a hundred miles of single track trails. Um, so you can just ride and ride and ride around here. Um, so it's, it's, it's really a lot of fun. You know, yeah. they're certainly not like going out to Colorado or Utah, but they're, they're good trails. Well, to your point, I think a lot of people think of St. Louis and the Midwest as this flat plainsy area, yeah. but uh, are you referring to just West of the city out that direction? Predominantly West and a little bit South too. Yeah. Okay. Um, but a lot gotcha. of them are on the Western side of town. And then if you go farther South, into what's called the uh, Mark Twain Forest, National Forest, there is, in essence, I mean, almost infinite miles of trails there. I mean, a lot of, most of them I've never ridden. Um, so it's, it's a pretty good place to be for mountain biking. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I just recently had a guest on the show that was speaking of mountain biking, and he kind of got into more of that endurance, 24-hour endurance racing, oh, wow. and uh, was actually a, a national champion for a brief second in time, he said, uh, before his, his reign ended, but, uh, he was kind of sharing some of his strategies around that endurance racing and the mindset and how he broke down every race sure. and, and, and the nutrition around it. And it was very fascinating. I, I, I wasn't aware of, of all the intricate details of the, of, of the culture of that. And, and it was interesting to learn about. So anyway, now do you still do any type of competing? Do you do anything that I haven't you're achieving? Probably eight to 10 years. I haven't 
So mostly just recreational riding. I've got a number of guys I like to ride with. I'll typically ride an hour and a half, maybe two hours maximum. So just, you know, just go on, go out and tool around for a while. But yeah, nothing, nothing too intense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, brother, man, we could probably talk a bunch of different topics and, and provide some additional valuable information for, for all these packs. And so maybe we'll circle the wagons and, and do another show around another topic, especially listeners. If you heard something we resonate or that resonated with you, or if you want something that you want honeypot and I to, to chat about, I'd love to get some ideas and, and maybe he and I can get back on the airways and, 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 and chat about it. But uh, for the sake of time, honeypot, we'll, we'll kind of wrap some things up here. And I do have two final questions for you. Uh, my first is this, and uh, you've already explained a lot of great health and wellness tips and, and things that you do personally and even how you share it with your patients. So it can be something similar to what you've already said, or it could be something completely new. But if you had to give three tips to get a man on their own hunt for wellness, what three tips that you would give them, you know, be? Well, you know, I think the first one, like we said, is, from a nutritional standpoint is um, quit the junk food. I mean, just do that. Um, uh, worry about the other stuff later, which is no easy task. But when I said, you know, for a lot of people, it's a significant component of their diet, but I think that's probably what's going to clean up your diet more than anything. Secondly, and this is probably um, uh, not so much for folks in F3, but, you know, get moving um, exercise and, and again, it, you know, um, doesn't necessarily for a lot of uh, folks who haven't been doing anything for decades does not have to be super intense but people need to get the their heart moving get out there walking and whatnot and certainly for folks like f3 keep doing it and i think the third one that is increasingly being recognized um is sleep that it is just so absolutely important for you and so many americans are sleep deprived and um when you're sleep deprived, you know, you, nothing really works right. It increases your risk of a number of different diseases. And in fact, the American Heart Association has just come out and listed a lack of sleep or sleep disorders as another risk for cardiovascular disease. So, you know, it's eat a little healthier, exercise a little more, get more sleep. And, you know, I think um, I suspect we have a lot of F3 men and men in general, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, have it all. We're working out and, you know, um, working hard at our jobs and then coming home and taking care of our M's and our 2.0s. And, and the last thing is, um, and all that is, is sleep. And, but it, it really does, um, catch up with you over time. So yeah, basically eat a little healthier, exercise a little more and get a little more sleep. I, I think would be a pretty good place to begin. Yeah, I think I agree with you a hundred percent. And just to put that value on that sleep, people don't realize that you know, that is our body's rest and recovery, you know, process. And if we're not allowing that, all types of things happen, including inability to burn fat. I mean, if, Absolutely. I've seen, I've seen studies. If you're getting on average less than six hours a night, that it becomes metabolically difficult for your body to do that and certainly recover and, and get back out there in the gloom. And, um, you know, I, I make that a high priority in my life is, is that sleep component, especially since, most of us get up so early in the morning. It's, it's really about being intentional that in the evening, right? It's about saying, I don't need to watch this additional show. I don't need to do this. And my experience for most people, it's not that they're too busy. They're just too distracted and they're doing things that they don't need to do. 
in order to to get the sleep. And so I think it's just being honest with yourself and saying, am I really staying up because it's just impossible for me to go to bed due to my responsibilities or am I not time management very well the rest of my day so that I'm stuck in a position where I'm staying up later than I need to be. And I think the latter is probably truer for most people than the former. And you mentioned the word junk food a couple of times. And I remember years ago hearing the, this, I don't, I wouldn't call it a quote, but basically says there's no such thing as junk food. There's junk and then there's food. <laughs> you know, just basically yeah. you eat either food or you're eating junk. There's, you know, this yeah. idea of junk food is kind of a misnomer because it's really not nutrition. It's really not new food, even though we want to kind of categorize it as that. It's, it's really not serving you or your body any help. Well, I think it goes along what you're saying with the, I like the saying that every bite you put in your mouth of food is either increasing or decreasing your health. Mm. And, and I think that's kind of sobering to think about that, that, uh, sure. you know, that, that, um, you know, you think, oh, well, what's this, you know, one little piece of cake going to do? You know, you're right. And, you know, it's immeasurable, but it, it's day after day after day. It, it does add up. It's kind of like compound interest type of thing. So, uh, but yeah, each, yeah. each little meal has this impact. Um, and, you know, they've actually quantified it that now with um, they've come up with some interesting computer modeling where they can say that one, you know, one piece of cheesecake will decrease your life by one minute or something like that <laughs> I mean, if they, um, type of thing. Cause they look at it, I guess they look over and say, okay, people eat these kind of diets live, live 10 years less than other people. So that's so many minutes and how many, you know, meals was that? And you know, it's, it's a rough calculation, but it, the point is that every little thing we do day after day has this little infinitesimal change in how we are, but over time it, it starts to have an effect. Yeah, now that you depress the the listeners, so <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, no, but on it, the positive it, side, every good thing you do, do there you goes go. the other way. So you know your your fate is in your hands, that, and that's well, one of the things I could interject too. Is yeah, go for I hear it. patients say to me all the time, "Oh, you know, I'm going to die of a heart attack. My dad did, my uncle did, blah blah blah." Genes are not destiny, and you know I hate when people say that. I, I know I'm going to get cancer because you know my mom had cancer. It, it, you certainly are at increased risk for all those disorders, but they are, you know, with a few um, diseases um, like Huntington's or whatever, that, that is true. The vast majority of it is just changing your risk profile. Yeah. I think you're speaking to epigenetics versus just genetics in Absolutely. and of itself. And yep. the, the power that we have as an individual to dictate our own health outcome is is staggering. And, and that's what you're alluding to. And you kind of beat me to the punch. I was going to say the same thing about the positive things that we do on a daily basis uh, improves our health. And I always tell people my goal every year is to be healthier at my next birthday than I was at my previous birthday. And, and Absolutely. Uh, you know, keep that in mind with my daily decisions. Uh, not that I'm perfect, far from it, but I also recognize that there are consequences to my actions, whether I'm choosing to eat poorly or eat positively. They all, they all make a difference and have an effect. I and one of the things to yeah, go add it. on that, I say to our listeners is, uh, you know, don't beat yourself up. If mm. you've been going along well and you kind of fall off the wagon, you know, maybe you went out with friends or you went to a ball game or whatever and, you know, ate a bunch of stuff you shouldn't have, you know, just, um, you know, I kind of like it. They say that the um, human beings with the shortest memory in the world are cornerbacks and safeties in the NFL. So, you know, they get burned and they just let it go and like, okay, new play, I'm here. 
And I think so, you know, don't perseverate. If you had a bad day, just say, okay, that, that didn't work out too well, but today's a new day and let's see if we can do better. Yeah, I agree. That's awesome advice. So I do have one final question for you, Honeypot. But before I ask that, uh, I, uh, excuse me, I just want to take a few moments here and just acknowledge you and say thank you once again for coming on the show and sharing your expertise and your own journey around health and nutrition. I think you were able to convey some really valuable information that PACs can apply and, and really implement in their own life and, and health uh, journey. So I appreciate you for that. Um, secondly, if a man heard something that they resonated with or just want to reach out to you personally with a question or whatever, what are some best ways for them to do that? Well, I'm uh, happy to give you my email. Uh, if anybody wants to email me, it's williamswellnessmd at gmail.com. So easy to remember. But no, I'd be happy. I, this is my passion. I love to talk to people about nutrition um, and uh, um, be happy to um, talk to anybody, email with anybody who's got any questions. Well, I appreciate that. And I love the fact that you have wellness in your email address. <laughs> that's, that's a buzzword for me as well. So my last question then, Honeypot, is this. What is your definition of wellness? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. And I think one of the problems we have in medicine is we define wellness as lack of disease. Um, you know, and how many times has a doctor said to someone, well, I don't know, ran all these tests and um, I can't find anything wrong with you. I think you're okay. And the patient's like, well, I, I'm not okay. So I think that wellness is defined more as having vitality, which again is a nondescript word, but I, I think it's um, when, when you just really feel good, but it's not based on just merely not having a disease that at any given time, a, a guy in a white coat can uh, diagnose. But yeah, I think it has to do with just feeling good and being able to live the life that you want to live, whatever that is. And you're not impeded from doing the things you want to do because of limitations on your body. You know, I like the saying, I want to die young at a very old age. So I think it's having that vitality and vigor that you can do whatever you want is, is to me the definition of, um, of wellness. Thanks for listening to the Hunt for Wellness podcast. Please rate and review our show and be sure to share it with your F3 brothers. As always, we are looking for inspiring stories to share and health experts to interview. So if that's you, please reach out to me at bones at huntforwellness.com, on the nation Slack at bones, or Twitter at HFW podcast. And until next time, this has been Bones guiding the packs of F3 Nation on their hunt for wellness.